Unearthing Paranormalcy is part of the Green Mushroom Podcast Network. I would like, if I may, to take you on a strange Welcome to another episode of Unearthing Paranormalcy, the podcast that digs into the paranormal and tries to find normalcy in the topic. I'm Amy. I'm Dave. And I'm Chad. And it is time to dig back into mythology. Myth, 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 mythology. But before we do that, let's go ahead and hear a promo from one of the Green Mushroom Podcast Network shows. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm Steve. And I'm Jason. And we're the hosts of an explorative podcast called Grognostics, where we mix in one part of curiosity, one part comedy, one part craft beer tastings, one part education, and yet one part fictional stories. Good lord, that's a lot of parts. Look, uh, this, the show's really cool, okay? I don't know, I'm not so sure now. Sounds more confusing than the time we came over early to your Christmas party last year and found you bawling your eyes out, pantless, mind you, to a Lance Bass Hallmark movie. That was a phase, Jason. A phase, I tell ya. <laughs> Look, if you want to listen, grab a cold one and tune in on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher Radio, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. You might even learn a thing or two. That's Grognostics, G-R-O-G-N-O-S-T-I-C-S. Look, my pants are in the dryer. Lance just happened to be on. Sure, buddy. Sure. Grognostics is immersion. They are. They are hilarious. And after you get done listening to this episode, you should go listen to some of their episodes. You totally should, especially the ones we're on. Or even <laughs> the ones we're not. Oh, true. Um, something I forgot to say at the front. It's my birthday month and my birthday week. Actually, the day of this release of this podcast will be the day after your birthday. It sure will. And we got to go and see Page Seven and Wizard and the Bruiser live. We got to meet and Jackie, sh- Holden, MJ, and Jake. And their live show is amazing. It is yeah, freaking it hilarious. It was really funny. I haven't laughed that hard in a long time. Yeah, me either. It was great. So if they're coming to your area... Go check them out because it's totally worth it. I mean, even if you don't listen to their podcast on a regular basis, like because Dave and Chad aren't, yeah, they're not, not like me. They don't like, listen to it every week and they were just rolling. So yeah. mm-hmm. you don't even have to know what they talk about because they talk about it in the show. All right. So let's get into some myths. Which area are we going to? This week we are staying on the Greek mythology path. Uh-huh. Uh, I'm going to read another story from Mythos by Stephen Fry. Awesome. Now we all kind of know the 
term, you know, like Midas's touch. Like, yeah. Well, this is the story of Midas, and it's got a little bit more to it than just turning things to gold. Just turning things to gold. Oh. In due time, Gordius died, and his son Midas succeeded him as king. His life was simple but elegant. Phrygia was not an especially rich kingdom, but most of the time and money that Midas did possess were lavished on a magnificent rose garden in the palace grounds. It became known as one of the wonders of the age. Midas loved nothing more than to roam this paradise of color and fragrant... Fragrant. Color and fragrance, <laughs> and tend to his plants, each one of which bore sixty glorious blooms. Does he collaborate? He collaborates with white ones. <laughs> oh my god, I couldn't imagine the pollen. <laughs> <laughs> one morning, as he wandered the garden, noting with hab- habitual delight how exquisitely the beads of the dew twinkled on the delicate petals of his darling roses, Midas tripped over the slumbering form of an ugly pot-bellied old man curled up on the ground and snoring like a pig. Oh! said Midas. I'm so sorry, I didn't see you there. With a belch and a hiccup, the old man rose to his feet and bowed low. Big pardon? He said. Couldn't help but be drawn by the sweet scent of your roses last night. Fell asleep. Not at all, said Midas politely. He had been brought up always to show respect for his elders. But why don't you come into the palace and partake of some breakfast? Don't mind if I do. Handsome of you. Midas had no way of knowing that this ugly pot-bellied old man was Silenus, boon companion of the wine god Dionysus. My favorite god of all. Perhaps you would like a bath, he suggested as they made their way indoors. For what? Oh, nothing, just a thought. Salinas stayed for ten days and ten nights, making deep inroads into Midas's mead cellar, but rewarding him with outrageous songs, dances, and stories. On the tenth night, he announced that he would be leaving the next morning. My master will be pining for me, he said. Don't suppose your people could conduct me to him, could they? With pleasure, said Midas. The next day, Midas and his retinue led Salinas on the long journey to the southern vineyards that Dionysus liked to frequent. At that time of many hours of struggling through the heat and tangled choked lanes, steep hills, narrow byways, they came upon the wine god and his attendants. Picnicking in the field, Dionysus overjoyed to see his old friend. Wine tastes sour without you, he said. Dances go wrong and music falls flat on the ears. Where have you been? Uh, I got lost, said Salinas. This kind fellow, he pushed the reluctant Midas forward to the face of the god, took me to his palace and gave me the run of the place. Drank most of his wine, ate most of his food, pissed in his water jars, then sicked up over his silk cushion. Never complained. Thoroughly good soul. Salinas 
slapped Midas on the back. Midas smiled as best as he could. He hadn't known about the water jars or the silk cushions. Oops. <laughs> Dionysus, like many deep drinkers, could easily become emotional and affectionate. He pawed gratefully at Midas. You see? He declared to the world in general. You see, just when you lose faith in humanity, they show their worth like this. This is what my father means by Zinya. Makes my heart burst. Name it. Excuse me. Midas was keen to leave ten, ten days of, and nights of Salinas. Had been quite, quite enough. He yearned now to be alone with his flowers. A drunken Dionysus with the full entourage of menads and satyrs might just be too much even for his patience. Name your reward. Anything. Whatever you desire, I will providedly divine, which is to say... Dionysus amended with dignity. I will divinely provide. So there. He added belligerently, turning suddenly round to face off no one in particular. You mean, my lord, that I can ask anything of you? Which one of us has not entertained Joy's fantasies of genies and fairies granting us wishes? <laughs> I'm sorry to say that at this offer from Dionysus, Midas had a rather a rush of blood to the head. I have mentioned that Phrygia was not one of the, or that was one of the poorer kingdoms. And while Midas was not considered by his friends to be rapacious or avaricious, he did long, like any ruler, for money to spend on his armies, his palace, his subjects, and his municipal amenities. The expenses of a royal household mount up, and Midas always been too benevolent of a king to burden his people with heavy taxes, and so he found a most extraordinary wish, making its way from his fevered brain to his mouth. Then I ask this, he said. That everything I touch be turned to gold. Dionysus smiled a rather diabolical smile. Really? That's what you want? That's what I want. Go home, said the god. Bathe yourself in wine and go to bed. When you arise in the morning, your wish will be granted. He's like, go home, Midas, you're drunk. <laughs> <laughs> It is probable that Midas did not believe that anything would come of this exchange. The gods were notorious for dodging, twisting, and sliding out of their obligations. Nevertheless, just in case, after all, what harm could it do? I mean, one never knows. That night, Midas poured a few hogsheads from his diminishing store of wine into a, the royal bath. The fumes from it ensured that when he went to bed... He enjoyed a deep and untroubled sleep. Midas awoke to a sparkling morning that cast all ideas of wild wishes and drunken gods from his mind. With thoughts only for his flowers, he sprang from bed and hurried to his beloved garden. Never had the roses looked more beautiful. He leaned down and sniffed a pink young hybrid that was in that perfect state midway between bud and full bloom. The exquisite fragrance made him giddy with joy. He lovingly made it to unfurl its petals. 
In an instant, the stem and flower had been transformed into gold. Painting the roses gold. Solid gold. Midas stared in disbelief. He touched another rose, and then another. The moment his fingers touched them, they turned to gold. He ran up and down around the garden in a whooping frenzy, brushing his hands along the bushes until everyone had been frozen into a hard, shining, precious, priceless, glorious golden gold. Skipping and shouting with joy, Midas beheld that he had once been a garden of rare roses and was now the most valuable treasure in all of the world. He was rich. He was insanely, monumentally rich. No one on earth had ever been richer. The sound of his exultant shouts attracted his wife, who came out of the palace doors and stood looking down, their infant daughter in her arms. Darling, why are you shouting? Midas ran up to her and, and encircled mother and child in a tight hug of excited joy. You won't believe it, he said. Everything I touch turns to gold. Look, all I have to do is... Oh. <laughs> he stepped back to see that his wife, an infant girl, will now one fused golden statue. Glittering in the morning sun, a frozen mother and child group that any sculptor would have been proud of. I'll attend to that later, Midas said to himself. There must be a way to recover them. Dionysus wouldn't be so. Meanwhile, Zim, Zam, Zoo. A guard on sentry, the great side door to the palace, and his favorite throne were now entirely gold. Vim, Vam, Voo. The side table, his goblet, his cutlery, solid gold. But what was this? Crack. His teeth almost broke on a hard golden peach. Tunk. His lips smelt metallic wine. Thwop. The heavy golden nugget that had once been a linen napkin crushed and bruised his lips. The unbound delight began to fade as Mindus realized the full import of his gift. You may imagine the rest. All at once, the thrill and pleasure of the ownership of gold were changed to dread and fear. All Midas touched turned to gold. But his heart turned to lead. No word of his, no shrieks of imprecation. To the heavens returned his cold, solidified wife and daughter to quick, warm life. The sight of his beloved roses dropped their heavy heads, caused him, caused his own to bow in misery. I like how he's more upset about his roses than his, his wife and his I child. Know, right? <laughs> Everything around him glinted and glittered gleamed and glimmered with a gorgeous, gaudy, golden glow, but his heart was as grim and gray as granite. That's a lot of alliteration. Jesus. <coughs> In the hunger and thirst, after three days of food and drink turning to inedible gold the moment he touched him, Midas felt ready for death. Atop his golden bed, whose hard, heavy sheets offered no warmth or comfort, he fell into a fevered sleep. He dreamed of his flowers blooming back into soft, delicate life, his roses. Yes, but most of all, the flowers that he now understood mattered most, his wife and child. 
in the wild, contorted dream, he saw the soft colors returning to their cheeks and the light shining once more in their eyes. As these beguiling images danced and flickered in his mind, the voice of Dionysus boomed inside him. Foolish man, it is fortunate for you that Silenus is so fond of you. Only for his sake do I show you mercy. When you awaken in the morning, betake yourself to the river Pactolus. Plunge your hands into its waters and your enchantment will be dissolved. Whatever you wash in the flask-flowing stream will be restored to you. The next morning, Midas did what the voice in his dreams had instructed. As, as promised, contact with the waters of the river relieved him of his golden touch. Mad with joy, he spent a good week shuttling back and forth, immersing his wife, his daughter, his guards, his servants, roses, and all of his possessions in the river, clamping his hands in delight as they returned to their valueless but priceless original state. After this, the waters of the Pactolus, which wind around the foothills of Mount Tamalus, became the single greatest source of electrum, a natural alloy, gold and silver, in all of the Aegean. See, at least leave the roses gold. Yeah, you, you think can you always like things. replant those and sell off the gold so you have the monies. Well, he can't replant them. Why not? He can't the seeds will just turn to gold. Uh, <laughs> no, when he washed his hands, he washed his hands first, and it got rid of the enchantment of oh, the full, Dionysus. not just the effects of the enchantment. Yeah. yeah. Okay. I see. You would think that Midas had learned his lesson by now. The lessons that repeats and repeats throughout the story of man: don't mess with gods. Don't trust the gods. Don't anger the gods. Don't barter with the gods. Don't compete with the gods. Leave the gods well alone. <laughs> Treat all blessings as a curse and all promises as a trap. Above all, never insult a god. Ever. Ever. <laughs> They're almost like the fae in that aspect. You know what I mean? Like... Oh, certainly. Um, have you ever read the Greek magical papyri? No. You should take a look at it. It is delightful. In one respect, Midas had certainly changed. He now spurned not just gold, but all riches and possessions. Shortly after Dionysus lifted the curse, Midas became a devoted follower of Pan. <laughs> yo, Pan! Yo, Pan! Yo, yo Pan! Pan! Yo, Pan! My man. The goat-footed god of nature, fauns, meadows, and all wild things of the world. With flowers in his hair, sandals on his feet. Oh, he became a hippie. Yeah, I was about to say, he got a little granola. And the merriest suggestions, uh, the merest suggestions of clothing covering his m modesty. Midas left his wife and daughter in charge of Phrygia, and devoted himself to a hippie happy life of simple bucolic virtue. All might have been well had not his master Pan taken it into his head to challenge Apollo to a competition to determine which was superior. 
the leader, or the pipes. One afternoon in a meadow, lying on the slopes of Mount Tamalus, Pan lifted the syrinx to his lips before the audience of fauns, satyrs, dryads, nymphs, and, and assorted demigods, and other lesser immortals. A coarse but likable air in the Lydian mode emerged. It seemed to summon barking deer, rushing waters, gambling rabbits, rutting stags, and galloping horses. The rough, rustic tune delighted the audience, especially Midas, who really did worship Pan, and all of the frolicking mirth and madness that the goat-footed one represented. When Apollo stood and sounded the first note of his lyre, a hush fell. From his strings arose visions of universal love, harmony, and, and happiness, a deep abiding joy in life, and a sense of heaven itself. When he had finished, the audience rose as one to applaud. Tumulus, the deity of the mountain, called out, The lawyer of the great Apollo wins. All agree? Aye, aye, aye. roared the satyrs and fawns. Apollo, 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 cried the nymphs and dryads. One, lo one lone voice demurred. No. no. No? Dozens of heads turned to see who could have dared dissent. Midas rose to his feet. I disagree. I say the pipes of Pan produce the better sound. Say, say that, that again? again? Even Pan was astonished. Apollo quietly put down his leer and walked towards Midas. Say that again? It could have at least been said of Midas that he had the courage of his convictions. He swallowed twice before repeating, I, I say the pipes make a better sound. Their music is more exciting, more artistic. Apollo must have been in a soft mood that day, for he did not slaughter Midas on the spot. He did not peel the skin from him layer by layer, as he had done with Mar Marcius, when that unfortunate, unfortunate had the temerity to challenge him. He did not cause Midas even the slightest amount of pain, but just said softly, you honestly think Pan played better than me? I do. Well, in that case, said Apollo, you with a laugh, you must have the ears of an ass. <laughs> no sooner were these words out of the god's mouth than Midas felt something strange and warm and rough going on in his scalp. As he put an inquiring hand to his head, howls and hoots and screams and screeches of mocking laughter started to come from the assembled throng. They could see what Midas could not. Two large great donkey ears had pushed their way through his hair and were now twitching and flickering back and forth for all the world to see. It seems I was right, said Apollo. You do indeed have the ears of an ass. We're getting a little Pinocchio-y here. <laughs> Crimsoning with shame and mortification, Midas turned and fled. 
Meadows, the taunts and jeers of the crowd sounding the more clearly in his great furry ears. His life as a camp follower of Pan was over. Tying his head in a kind of turban, he returned to his wife and family in the palace of Gordium. In his carefree experiment in country living, decidedly done with, settled back down into the life of a king. The only person who saw his ass's ears was necessarily the servant who cut his hair every month. No one else in Phrygia knew the terrible secret, and Midas was determined it should stay that way. Here's the deal, Midas told the barber. I give you a bigger salary and a more generous pension than any other member of the palace staff, and you keep quiet about what you have seen. If, however... You breathe a word to anyone. I will slaughter your family before your eyes, cut out your tongue, and leave you to wander the world in mute poverty and exile. Understood. The frightened barber nodded. For three years, each side kept to the bargain. The barber's wife and family waxed fat and happy on the extra money that came in, and no one found out that the king's asinine auditory appendages <laughs> turbans in Midas's st- turbans in the Midas style caught on throughout Phrygia Lydia Thrace and beyond all was well but secrets are a terrible thing to have to keep especially such juicy ones as to which the rural barber was privy every day he would wake up and feel that the knowledge was writhing and swelling inside him. The barber loved his wife and family, was in any case loyal enough to his monarch not to have any wish to humiliate or embarrass him. But that bulging, ballooning secret had to be released somehow before he burst. No unmilked cow with swollen udders, no mother of overdue twins, no gut-stuffed gastronome, Straining on the privy could ever feel such a desperate need for relief from their agonies than such a poor the poor barber. Finally, he hit upon a scheme, which he would he felt sure would rid him of the burden without endangering his family. Awaking from a tortured night in which he had dreamed that he revealed the secret to the gaping populace of Gordium, from a balcony in the main square, he went at first light deep in the remote countryside, in a lonely place by a stream. He dug a deep trench in the ground, looking about him in all directions to make sure that he was alone and that there was no possibility of being overheard. He knelt down, cupped his hands around his mouth, and he shouted these words into the hole. Midas has Midas's ears! ears! Scrambling frantically to close up the hole before the words could escape. He failed to notice one tiny seed floating down and settling at the bottom. When the backfilling was done, the barber stamped fiercely up and down on the earth to seal in the the dreadful secret. He skipped all the way back to Gordium, headed straight for his favorite tavern, and ordered a flagon of the house's best wine. He could drink now without fear that the wine might loosen his tongue. It was as if he was Atlas, and the sky had finally been lifted from his shoulders. Meanwhile, 
over the next few weeks back on the remote field by the stream, that tiny seed, warmed by the soft breath of Gaia below, began to germinate. Soon, a delicate little reed was shouldering its way through the topsoil and pushed its delicate head into the air as the breeze caught the reed. It softly whispered, Midas has ass's ears. The faint words reached the rushes and sedges that fringe the river bank. Midas has ass's ears. The susurration of the rushes and the hiss of the sedges was swept on by the grasses and the leaves of the trees, and swiftly the softening of cypresses and sallows sent the sound through the breeze. Midas has ass's ears, sighed the branches. Midas has ass's ears, sang the birds. And at last the news reached the city. Midas Midas has has ass's ass's ears! King Midas woke with a start. There was laughter and shouting in the street outside the palace. He crept to the window, crouched down, and listened. The humiliation was too much for him to bear. Without stopping to wreak his vengeance on the barber and the barber's family, he mixed a poisonous draught of ox blood, raised his eyes heavenward, gave a bitter laugh and shrugged, drained the drink, and died. Poor Midas. His name will always mean something fortunate and rich, but truly he was unlucky and poor. If only he had kept his roses. Green fingers are better than gold. It's an interesting story. I never heard anything about the other stuff with him. I always just heard about the... That was kind of my thing, like... I remember, after reading it, I remember hearing the stories of the ass's ears, mm-hmm. but I, I didn't remember it at first, and now, of course, I mean, the quotes and stuff in this book are, you know, kind of stuff Stephen Fry made up to yeah fill the story and make it feel better, or not feel better, but explain the story yeah. and make it more enter- entertaining, but... This was the last chapter of uh, Stephen Fry's Mythos. Um, I definitely suggest anyone who's into Greek mythology or just mythology and the stories, the way he did these stories is just, it was really fun to listen to. Like I said, it added entertainment value to it instead of just someone telling you about the history. Gave it a personality to it. I'm going to have to get it, at least on Audible. Yeah, Um, I have it on Audible and then I bought the hard copy. But see, I school gets out next week, so that'll give me like three weeks that I could like read for pleasure. Yeah. Before I have to start back up on biology. <laughs> but yeah, I've always loved Greek mythology, and I don't. I I mean, I probably have four or five Greek mythology books. Yeah. But Mythos is definitely my favorite. Um, just he has a of good wh- way of storytelling. He uses alliteration. Yeah. Like, yeah. like that part was like five G words in a row. <laughs> <laughs> but like, yeah, the way he just he adds the personality of the character of the gods and the mortals, and then I, I he just, it just makes it fun to read. And even the audible is actually really good to listen to because it's not just very monotone yeah. history kind of talk. Um, he's also got a book called Troy which is over 
of course, Troy. Troy. <laughs> and then there's he has another one. I can't remember what it's called, but I'm interested in trying those out as well. Well, you know, <clears> it's <throat> the same with like um, uh, Neil Gaiman. He made the Norse legends really yeah. entertaining. I have that hard copy that I'm going to start reading now that I like, finish this. Yeah. I, I definitely recommend it too. But yeah, I it's because we all know the stories, at least somewhat. It's always good when you find a good storyteller who can bring life to the stories in a different way that you aren't. Accustomed yeah, that's to. what I liked about this. Cause like I said, I've been studying or reading Greek mythology stuff since I was in like third or fourth grade. Like yeah. that's as early as it was for me. So I know almost all the stories of Greek mythology but it was definitely the most fun to read and listen to just cause, like I said, the personality added to it yeah. and just the, like the little back and forths and, but the book is very good. Um, most of the chapters are like 20 minutes to an hour long, depending on which chapters they are. And, but. Well, it'll have to be number two because number one is going to totally be the Preston Nichols book with the koala and the UFO on the cover. Yeah. I can't remember what it's called. I UFOs just remember. and the Pleiadians <laughs> or story, yeah. stories of UFOs and Pleiades or something like that. Yeah. yeah. That'll be my first one and then uh, I'll have to do the other one. Yeah. But I definitely suggest anyone who's into mythology, look up Stephen Fry's work and see if there's one that he covers, if there's something you're interested in. Uh, Neil Gaiman as well. Yeah. Neil Gaiman, sorry. Because uh, you have that Norse gods. Um, but yeah, that's probably going to be it of the Greek mythology stories for a while. I got to find a new, got to find a new mythology, new to, go mythology for. to go for. Cause I've caught up on all the Greek mythology and all the stories that are fun to talk about. Right. What do you got there? So you were talking about the Greek, what? The Greek magical papyri, also known as the papyri Greca magica. And this is the introduction by Hans Dieter Betz. The Greek magical papyri is a name given by scholars to a body of papyri from Greco-Roman Egypt, containing a variety of magical spells and formulae, hymns and rituals. The extant texts are mainly from the 2nd century BC to the 5th century AD. To be sure, this body of material represents only a small number of all the magical spells that once existed. Beyond these papyri, we possess many other kinds of material, artifacts, symbols, and inscriptions on gemstones, on ostraca and clay bowls, and on tablets of gold, silver, lead, tin, and so forth. The history of the discovery of the Greek magical papyri is a fascinating subject. We know from literary sources that a large number of magical books in which spells were collected existed in antiquity. Most of them, however, have disappeared as a result of systematic suppression and destruction. The episode about the burning of the magical books in Ephesus and the Acts of the Apostles is well known and typical of many such instances. According to Sectanius, Augustus ordered 2,000 magical scrolls to be burned in the year 13 BC. Indeed, the first centuries of the Christian era saw many burnings of books, often of magical books, 
and not a few burnings that included the magicians themselves. As a result of these acts of suppression, the magicians and their literature went underground. The propriety themselves testified to this by the constantly reoccurring admonition to keep the books secret. Yet the systematic destruction of the magical literature over a long period of result of time, a long period of time, resulted in the disappearance of most of the original texts by the end of antiquity. To us in the 20th century, terms such as underground literature and suppressed literature are well known as descriptions of contemporary phenomena. We also know that such literature is extremely important for the understanding of what people are really thinking and doing in a particular time, geographical area, or cultural context. Magical beliefs and practices can hardly be overestimated in their importance for the daily life of the people. The religious beliefs and practices of most people were identical with some form of magic. And the neat distinctions we make today between approved and disapproved forms of religion, calling the former religion in church and the latter magic and cult, did not exist in antiquity except among a few intellectuals. Thus, the suppression of this magical literature has deprived us from one of our most important sources of ancient religious life. Modern views of Greek and Roman religions have long suffered from certain deformities because they were unconsciously shaped by the only remaining sources, the literature of the cultural elite and the archaeological remains of the official cults of the states and cities. But not everything was lost. At the end of antiquity, some philosophers and theologians, astrologers and alchemists, collected magical books and spells that were still available. Literary writers included some of the material in their works, if only to make fun of it. It is known that the philosophers of the Neopythagorean and Neoplatonic schools, as well as the Gnostic and Hermetic groups, used magical books and hence have possessed copies. But most of their material vanished, and what we have left are their quotations. The Greek magical papyri are, however, original documents and primary sources. Their discovery is in, as important for Greco-Roman religions as the discovery of the Qumran text for Judaism or the Nag Hammadi library for Gnosticism. Like these manuscript discoveries, the discovery of the Greek magical papyri was, and often still is, the outcome of sheer luck and almost incredible coincidences. In the case of the major portion of the collection, the so-called Anatazi collection, the discovery and rescue is owed to the efforts, and if one may use the term cooperation, of cooperation of two individuals separated by more than a thousand years, the modern collector Dianatazi and the original collector at Thebes. In the 19th century, there was among the diplomatic representatives at the court of Alexandria a man who called himself Jean de Anasti, who believed to be Armenian by birth. He ingratiated himself enough with the Pasha to become the consular representative of Sweden. It was a time when diplomats and military men often were passionate collectors of antiquity 
and M. Donosti happened to be at the right place at the right time. He succeeded in bringing together large collections of papyri from Egypt, among them sizable magical books, some of which he said he had obtained in Thebes. These collections he shipped to Europe, where they were auctioned off and bought by various libraries. The British Museum in London, the Bibliothèque Nationale in the Louvre in Paris, in Paris, <laughs> the Stadtlich Machine in Berlin, and the Rijksmuseum in Leiden. Another papyrus was acquired by Jean-François Memont, also a diplomat whose acquisition ended up in the Bibliothèque Nationale. Unfortunately, we know almost nothing about the circumstances of the actual findings, but it is highly likely that many of the papyri from the Anastasi collection came from the same place, perhaps a tomb or a temple library. If this assumption is correct, about half a dozen of the best preserved and largest extent papyri may have come from the collection of one man in Thebes. He is, of course, unknown to us but we may suppose that he collected the magical material for his own use. Perhaps he was more than a magician. We may attribute his almost systematic collections of magica to a man who was also a scholar, probably philosophically inclined, as well as a bibliophile and an archivist concerned about the preservation of this material. Although this person who collected the Anastasi papyri remains unknown, Comparable figures are known from later Egyptian literature. In the Demotic Papyrus, number 30646 in the Cairo Museum, there appears Prince Quamus, the fourth son of King Ramses II and the High Priest of Ta in Memphis. This legendary figure belongs to the stories of the High Priest of Menches, published by Francis Lewin Griffith. Stories that in many ways can serve as illustrative companions to the Greek magical papyri. Marianne Lichtheim has given this summary portrait in the third volume of her ancient Egyptian literature. Prince Kalmus, king of Ramses II and high priest of Ta at Memphis, was a very learned scribe and magician who spent his time in the study of ancient monuments and books. One day he was told of the existence of a book of magic written by the god Toth himself and kept in the tomb of a prince named Na-Nefer-Kaptah, who lived in the distant past and was buried somewhere in the vast necropolis of Memphis. After a long search, Prince Kamwas, accompanied by his foster brother Inarus, found the tomb of Nanefer-Kaptah and entered it. He saw the magic book, which radiated a strong light, and tried to seize it. But the spirits of Nanefer-Kaptah and of his wife, Awer, rose up to defend their cherished possession. Unquote. The collection of the Anastasi Papyra if it was brought together by one person, may have been buried with him, either in his tomb or in the rubble of collapsed buildings. At any rate, when Anastasi came to Thebes and the papyri were offered to him, 
he sensed their value and acquired them, thus saving them from destruction. It took almost another century, however, before scholars learned to appreciate the value of the papyri and started investigating them. It is noteworthy that the auction catalog of Denonosti's collection called the material simply, quote, Frumage Mystique, unquote. Until the middle of the 19th century, the papyri were stored in the museum simply as curiosities. Scholarly investigations began when the great Dutch scholar Caspar Jacob Christian Ravens, or Ruvens? Ruvens, described some of the content of the Leiden papyrus in his Lettres Emma Letron, published in 1830. This work was reviewed almost immediately by the German historian of religion, Karl Afreid Müller, who also translated Reuven's excerpts into German. But Reuven's died before his edition of the Leiden papyri could appear. It was 40 years before another Dutch scholar, the Egyptologist Conrad Lehmans, published the edition, together with a Latin translation. The first publication, however, is due to the efforts of the British scholar Charles Wideclough Goodwin, who published one of the papyri together with an English translation and commentary for the Cambridge Antiquarian Society in 1853. Then the German philologist Gustav Parthe edited the two papyri from Berlin in 1865. A very new and a very important new phase began with the Viennese papyrologist Carl Wesley, published in 1888, a transcription of the great magical papyrus of Paris, the London papyrus, and the Minamot papyrus, followed in 1889 by corrections. In 1893, both Wesley and Frederick George Kenyon independently edited and published the Magical Papyri of London, the last major papyrus was published in 1925 by the Norwegian scholar Samsum Atram, who had acquired in Egypt a valuable magical scroll with many drawings. With these important publications, the major pieces of the Greek magical papyri known to this period had become available. It seems to have been a suggestion first made by the great scholar of Greek religion, Albrecht Dieterich that all the available papyri should be published in a handy study edition. But this idea developed only gradually after Dieterich began teaching a seminar on the subject of the magical papyri at the University of Heidelberg in 1905. Today, it is an astonishing to learn that teaching such a seminar at that time was quite a daring enterprise. Magic was so utterly despised by historians and philologist, that the announcement of the seminar did not mention the word magic, but was simply phrased as, quote, selected pieces from the Greek papyri, unquote. How far the dislike the magical papyri could go is illustrated by a marker made by Ulrich von William of Zatzis Maltendorf, quote, I once heard, and he doesn't sound like this, but I once heard a well-known scholar complain that these papyries were found because they deprived antiquity of the noble splendor of classicism, unquote. 
Dieteric, however, was on the verge of a wave of interest generated by the new discipline of history of religions. His seminar, therefore, had a surprising attraction for students, some of whom wrote their dissertations on related subjects and became contributors to the study edition. The plan for such a study edition was seriously threatened by Diderik's sudden death on the 6th of May, 1908. But the work was taken over by Diderik's students, foremost of whom was Richard Wonks, chief editor, Adam Abt, Ludwig Foss, Adolf Ehrnman, George Muller, and other contributors stepped in to carry on the work. When the body of the material of PGM 1-4 was almost ready, World War I broke out and interrupted the work. Wunsk, Ab, and Muller were killed in the war. Despite these terrible losses and the desperate economic situation following the war, the publisher B.G. Tubner of Leipzig did not give up the project, but decided to start over. The edition was entrusted to Karl Prasendens, another of Diederich's former students. Scholars at the time faced difficulties scarcely conceivable to us today, yet they persisted. In addition, a remarkable degree of international cooperation existed amongst the scholars. Sam Eitram from Oslo and Adolf Jacobi from Luxembourg joined the team, and British, French, and Dutch scholars gave their support to the effort. The Not-Gemeinschweiter-Deutschen-Wischenschaft as well as other governmental agencies gave financial support, so that despite all the problems, the first volume of the first edition of the Papyri Garcia Magica could appear in 1928, with a second volume following in 1931. While all this was happening, new magical papyri were being discovered and published. A third volume, which also supposed to contain extensive indexes, therefore became necessary. But this volume never appeared, for World War II broke out. <clears throat> Despite the war, the work had progressed to the actual production of galley proofs with the preface dated Pentecost 1941. And on the 4th of December 1943, the publishing house of Tubner in Leipzig was bombed and everything was destroyed. Fortunately, however, the galley proofs survived the war and are at present being used by a number of scholars in the form of Xerox copies. When Karl Preidenstanz, the editor of the first edition and tireless promoter of the study of the Greek magical papyri before and after World War II, died on the 26th of April 1968, the publishing house of Tobner, Tubner, which had in part been relocated in Stuttgart, West Germany, decided to bring out a new edition. This edition was prepared by Albert Henrichs, a papyrologist from Cologne, who had been on the facility of Harvard University since 1973. It appeared in two volumes in 1973 and 74. The first volume is mostly a reprint of the first edition, though many corrections have been made. The second volume, however, is considerably difficult from the first edition. A number of papyri were re-edited completely, 
and the papyri originally planned to appear in Volume 3 were added so that Volume 2 of the 1974 editions contains all pieces up to PGMLXXI, which is 81, if I'm not mistaken. I don't know Roman <clears throat> numerals at all, other than I have a three on my wrist. Ah, uh-huh. <laughs> so you can count up to three I in Roman numerals. I can four because Chad's got uh-huh. four on his. A one, a two, a three, a four. <laughs> <laughs> the idea of a third volume containing the indexes was postponed because all indexes would have to be redone in view of the changes and additions in the material. What is the significance of the Greek magical papyri? Scholars since Albrecht Dyer. Dieteric have consistently pointed out the importance of the Greek magical papyri to the study of ancient religions. Thus, we can limit ourselves here to the summary of the issues. Historians of religion are intrigued by the Greek magical papyri for a number of reasons. As if Dieteric rightly says, the papyri, a depository of a great religious literature over many centuries, the recovery of the sources becomes a task of primary interest. In fact, throughout these sources, we find citations of hymns, rituals, formulae from liturgies otherwise lost, and little bits of mythology called historiale. These older materials are now embedded in a secondary context, but by careful application of the methods of literary criticism, they are often recoverable. Taken as a whole, the material represents a plethora of interesting problems for modern scholarship. One must realize first that the material assembled under the name Greek Magical Papyri represents a collection of texts of diverse origin and nature. This collection includes individual spells and remedies, as well as collections made by ancient magicians from the early Hellenistic period to late antiquity. Since the material comes from Greco-Roman Egypt, it reflects an amazingly broad religious and cultural pluralism. Not surprising is the strong influence of Egyptian religion throughout the Greek magical papyri, although here the texts nevertheless show a great variety. Expressed in Greek, Demotic, or Coptic, some texts represent simply Egyptian religion. In others, the Egyptian element has been transformed by Hellenistic religious concepts. Most of the texts are mixtures of several religions, Egyptian, Greek, Jewish, to name the most important. The picture presented by the Greek magical papyri has been changed substantially by the inclusion of the translation of the Demotic magical papyri. In Prasandin's edition, the demotic material was deleted, even when it occurred at the same papyrus as Greek sections apparently written by the same scribe. The inclusion of the demotic materials in the present translation raises new and intriguing questions regarding the relationship between the Greek text and the antecedent Egyptian sources. Further studies must clarify the process of transmission and transformation of these texts. Such studies will gain new insights into the complex phenomena of the Hellenization of religious traditions. Another interesting problem is posed by the fact 
This material from Greco-Roman Egypt contains many sections that are Greek in origin and nature. How did this older Greek religious literature find its way into Egypt? We do not and probably never shall know. In this older material, the Greek gods are alive and well. But Zeus, Hermes, Apollo, Artemis, Aphrodite, and others are portrayed not as Hellenistic and aristocratic, as in literature, but as capricious, demonic, and even dangerous, as in Greek folklore. Dun, dun. 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 The gods and their activities resemble those in the popular myths and local cults, as reported by mythographers or by Pausanias. Therefore, strange as it may sound, if we wish to study Greek folk religion, the magical papyri found in Egypt are be to regard it as one of the primary sources. Questions similar to those appropriate to the study of Greek religion must be raised in the view of the material that come from some form of Judaism. Jewish magic was famous in antiquity, and more sources have come to light in recent years, but the origin and nature of the sections representing Jewish magic in the Greek magical papyri is far from clear. Did this material actually originate with Jewish magicians? How did it get into the hands of the magicians who wrote the Greek magical papyri? What kind of transformation took place in the material itself? If the text in question come from Judaism, what type of Judaism do they represent? The historian of religion will be especially interested in the kind of syncreticism represented in the Greek magic papyri. This syncreticism is more than a mixture of diverse elements from Egyptian, Greek, Babylonian, and Jewish religion, with a few sprinkles of Christianity. Despite the diversity of text, there is whole corpus, a tendency towards assimilation and uniformity. Such assimilation and uniformity, however, includes primarily the religious traditions already mentioned. The Romans, although in control of Egypt by the time most of the papyri were written, left only a few traces in the material. Thus, the papyri represents a Greco-Egyptian rather than a more general Greco-Roman syncreticism. In this syncreticism, the indigenous ancient Egyptian religion has in part survived, in part been profoundly Hellenized. In its Hellenistic transformation, the Egyptian religion of the pre-Hellenistic era appears to have been reduced and simplified, no doubt to facilitate its assimilation into Hellenistic religion as the predominant cultural reference. It is quite clear that the magicians who wrote and used the Greek magical papyri were Hellenistic in outlook. Hellenization, however, also includes the Egyptianizing of Greek religious traditions. The Greek magical papyri contain many instances of such Egyptianizing transformations, which take very different forms in different texts or layers of tradition. Again, working out the more exact nature of this religious and cultural interaction remains the task of future research. The papyri also provide many insights into the phenomena do, 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 do. of the magician as a religious functionary in both the Egyptian and the Hellenistic setting. 
One must be cautious, however, in making generalizing statements in regards to the figure of the magician in the Greek magical papyri. Some of the magician's writings and using the spells may have been associated with temples of Egyptian and Greek deities. According to Egyptian practice, the magician was a resident member of the temple priesthood. Genuine understanding of the older Egyptian and Greek languages and traditions can be assumed in some of the material, but by no means in all instances. There are texts reflecting perhaps a different type of magician, a type we know from the Greek religious milieu. This type of wandering craftsman seems keen to adopt and adapt every religious tradition that appeared useful to him, while the knowledge and understanding of what he adopted was characterized by a certain superficiality. This type of magician no longer understood the old languages, although he used remnants of them in transcription. He recited and used what must at one time have been metrically composed hymns, but he no longer recognized the meter, and he spoiled it when he inserted his own material. In the hands of magicians of this type, the gods from the various cults gradually emerged, and their natures became blurred. They often changed into completely different deities. For these magicians, there was no longer any cultural difference between the Egyptian and the Greek gods, or between them and the Jewish god and the Jewish angels. And even Jesus was occasionally assimilated into this truly ecumenical religious syncreticism of the Hellenistic world culture. We should make it clear, however, that this syncreticism is more than a hodgepodge of heterogeneous items. In effect, it is a new religion altogether, displaying unified religious attitudes and beliefs. As an example, one may mention the enormously important role of the gods and goddesses of the underworld. The role of these underworld deities was not new to Egyptian religion, or to some extent to ancient Greek religion. But it is characteristic of the Hellenistic syncreticism of the Greek magical papyri that the netherworld and its deities have become one of its most important concerns. The goddess Hecate, identical with Persephone, Selene, Artemis, and the old Babylonian goddess Arishkago, is one of the deities most often invoked in the papyri. Through the Egypt, Egyptianizing influence of Osiris, Isis, and their company, and other gods like Hermes, Aphrodite, and even the Jewish god Ieo, have in many respects become underworld deities. In fact, human life seems to consist of nothing but negotiations in the antechamber of death and the world of the dead. The underworld deities, the demons, and the spirits of the dead are constantly and unscrupulously invoked and exploited at the most important means for achieving the goals of human life on earth. The acquisition of love, wealth, health, fame, knowledge of the future, control over other persons, and so forth. In other words, there is a consensus that the best way to success in worldly pleasures is by using the underworld, death, and the forces of death. Apart from this fascination with the control of death and the underworld powers, there is an equally important fascination with the universe. The older gods of the Greco-Egyptian pantheon now mostly represent the forces of the universe— Thus, the Greek god most invoked is Apollo Helios. 
a fact consistent with the enormous expansion of the worship of the sun in Greco-Roman era. Besides the other astral deities such as Selene, the constellation of the bear and the like, abstract deities, new and old, demand attention. These abstract deities personify nature, physis, time, chronos, destiny, the more, and most importantly, the all, aeon. Popular Egyptian gods and goddesses, however, are called upon just as often. Yet the god most often employed is Ayu, the Jewish god. The people whose religion is reflected in the papyri agree that humanity is inescapably at the whim of the forces of the universe. Religion is nothing but taking seriously this dependency on the forces of the universe. Whether the gods are old or new, whether they come from Egyptian, Greek, Jewish, or Christian traditions, religion is regarded as nothing but the awareness of and reaction against our dependency on the infallible scramble of energies coming out of the universe. In this energy jungle, human life can only be experienced as a jungle too. People's successes and failures appear to be only the result of chance. Individuals seem to be nothing but marionettes at the end of power lines, pulled here and there without their knowledge by invisible forces. If this worldview takes hold of people, what hope can there be for human life? How could ordinary men and women in the small towns of Egypt get something out of their lives? It is at this point that the magician enters the picture. In a transitional culture like Greco-Roman Egypt, a religious functionary who operated as a crisis manager became a necessity to the lives of ordinary people. The role the magician was able to fulfill. Applying his craft, the magician could give people the feeling that he could make things work in a world where nothing seemed to work the way it used to. He had handbooks of magic, which contained the condensed wisdom of the past, wisdom made effective to solve the problems of the present. The magician claimed to know and understand the traditions of various religions, while other people could no longer make sense of the old religions he was able to. He knew the code words needed to communicate with the gods, the demons, and the dead. He could tap, regulate, and manipulate the invisible energies. He was a problem solver who had remedies for a thousand petty problems plaguing mankind. Everything from migraines to runny noses to bedbugs to racehorses. And of course, all the troubles of love and money. In short, it was this kind of world in which the magician served as a power and communications expert, crisis manager, miracle healer, and inflictor of damages, an all-purpose therapist and agent of worried, troubled, and troublesome souls. To raise one final question, it is one of the puzzles of all magic from time immemorial. It has survived throughout history through the coming and going of entire religions, the scientific and technological revolutions, and the triumphs of modern medicine. Despite all these changes, there has always been an unbroken tradition of magic. Why is magic so irrepressible, ineradictable, 
if it is also true that its claims and promises never come true? Or do they? Do people never check up on the efficiency of magicians? The answer appears to be that in general, people are not interested in whether or not magicians' promises come true. People want to believe, so they simply ignore their suspicions that magic may all be deception and fraud. The enormous role depiction plays in human life and society is well known to us. In many crucial areas and in many critical situations of life, deception is the only method that really works. As the Roman aphorism sums it up, Mondus volt da sepi ergo decapiatra, which means, the world wishes to be deceived, and so it may be deceived. To an immeasurable extent, people's lives carry on by what they decide they want to believe, rather than by what they should believe or even know. But what appears to be real rather than what is really real, by props and by fads and by gobbledygook of this kind today and that kind tomorrow, magicians are those that have long ago explored these dimensions of the human mind, rather than decrying the facts they have exploited them. Magicians have known all along that people's religions need and expectations provide the greatest opportunity for the most most effective of all deceptions. But instead of turning against religion, as the skeptics among the Greek and Romans philosophers did, the magicians made use of it. After all, magic is nothing but the art of making people believe that something is being done about those things in life, which we all know that we ourselves can do nothing. Magic is the art that makes people who practice it feel better rather than worse, that provide the illusion of security to the insecure, the feeling of help to the helpless, and the comfort of hope to the hopeless. Of course it is all deception, but who can endure naked reality especially when there is a way to avoid it? This is why magic has worked and continues to work, no matter what the evidence may be. Those whose lives depend on deception and delusion, and those who provide them have formed a truly indissolvable symbiosis. Magic makes an unmanageable life manageable for those who believe in it, and a profession profitable for those who practice the art. But if you want a copy of this, it's like 400 freaking pages. It has all kinds of stuff in here. Everything you can think of, uh... The headless rite is in here, the one that Crowley put in with his Solomonic magic for some reason. Um, invocations to all the deities and stuff. Yeah, if you if you want a copy of it, hit me up and I'll I'll send you this one I have. Awesome. Well, thank you for sharing that with us, Dave. Well, I think that's going to do it for our Greek mythology episode. Thank you everyone for listening, and be sure to check out our Facebook, Instagram, and Discord at UMP Normalcy. Also, don't forget to check out Patreon. We're at patreon.com slash umpnormalcy. And also, we are going to be starting to do some advertisements in our episodes. Um, So one of our perks for Patreon will become ad-free episodes. We want to again thank you guys for listening. Be sure to rate us and review us if your podcast app allows it. It helps us get into more ears and get heard a little bit more so 
I guess that would be getting into more years, right? <laughs> <laughs> so that'll do it for tonight. Until next time. Keep digging. Unearthing Paranormalcy is a part of the Green Mushroom Podcast Network. To hear more great independent productions like the one you just listened to, visit our catalog 